Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. <clears throat> Romans chapter 2, and our text is verses 17 to 29. Jesus says in Luke chapter 5, verse 11, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That none will ever see their need for Christ until they understand their helpless state before him, before a holy God. And in this section that we are in currently, that began in chapter 1, verse 18, and it will go through chapter 3, verse 20, that the Apostle Paul is demonstrating not only the need for the Gentiles to call upon the Lord, but also for Jews themselves to call upon the Lord to see their state before a holy God. The Gentiles are uh, indicted in chapter 1 as they have uh, not the law, but that they are a law unto themselves, demonstrating the law of God on their hearts. The Jews, he begins to address in chapter 2. And as we've talked about, the Apostle Paul really uses the same kind of technique as what Amos does. He anticipates that his Jewish readers are going to agree with what he says concerning the Gentiles in chapter 1, verses 18 and following, that the Gentiles are under the wrath of God. They, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They profess to be wise. They become fools. They exchange the glory of God for the, incorru- the incorruptible God for that of corruptible man. They begin in idolatry. Then they begin in sexual immorality. The Jews would, would agree with this. But then he begins to turn his attention to them in chapter 2 as we have went over when he says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. So the same kind of technique the Apostle Paul uses is what Amos does. Amos begins his prophecies concerning the surrounding nations, and then he turns his attention to Israel and Judah. This is what the Apostle Paul is doing as well. The Jews themselves need to see their state before a holy God. They cannot take it for granted that they are simply God's covenant people and that everything is fine. They, and this is what the Apostle is addressing in this, this portion of, his, of God's word, is that he is taking the foundation of their assurance and he is demolishing it. You can't, you can't have assurance simply because you are a Jew. You cannot have assurance simply because you have circumcision. You cannot have assurance simply because you have the law. That is what he is addressing here. This is a great demonstration of what the apostle says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, when he says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is precisely what he's doing to his Jewish audience here in this portion of Romans. He removes the foundation of their assurance from them that they would see their need for Christ. Interestingly, throughout these verses, especially throughout the entirety of chapter 2, he does not yet call upon them to place faith in Christ. That is coming. They need to see that they are sin-sick first. They need to see that they cannot depend upon their ethnicity or on circumcision, or on the law. And that's where he's been going thus far. He's saying you boast in the law, and yet you're the one breaking the law. There's a greater accountability to you because you have the law. 
you condemn the Gentiles, you're really good at pointing out everyone else's sin, but you're doing the same things. And he's, this is really continuing in to this portion as well. But we need to understand this, though, that this isn't just the apostle just trying to rebuke a specific audience. He has great affection for his countrymen. He has great affection for those who are Israelites according to the flesh. He even says later on in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's how much affection that he has for them. He is indeed trying to establish their need for Christ, that they would come to know him and that they would be saved. At this particular time, and you can see it throughout the Gospels as well, as Jesus is confronted with the religious leaders time and time again, that their pride had blinded them. The things that were initially good, the advantages that they had as being God's covenant people, the knowledge that they had of him and his word, these were good things. But instead of cultivating in them a greater desire and a greater uh, faith in the one who gave these, they began to look at their privileges and their advantages as the assurance of their salvation. And this is what Paul is rebuking them for, their pride, their hypocrisy, and establishing the reality that what God requires is only brought about in the person through the Holy Spirit. And that's where he sums it up in verse 29. This is needful that we see this because even as believers, the blessings that we receive and the advantages that we have in Christ are good. They are good. When, when, you come to, when you come to know Christ and you're coming to see the reality of everything, you're coming to see the Christian worldview that everything is making sense in the Christian worldview which comports with reality, where you have a foundation for knowledge and for, for ethics and all of the things that we talk about. These things are good. Knowledge is good. But knowledge is not an end in itself. It's, it's to promote in us a greater desire and commitment to the one who gave it. These blessings and advantages are not, not intended to cloud our faith and become our assurance uh, because in the time that they do, we will find ourselves in the same situation as Paul's audience here. The object of our faith is Christ and Christ alone, not any advantage or any blessing that we may have. Christ is always the object. He is always the object of faith. He alone is, is the hope of our assurance. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. And we will read verses 17 through verse 29. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? 
You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. And Father, we pray that the Spirit of God that you have granted to us will open our hearts and our minds to receive what we are being taught here. We pray that you would do a mighty work within us. Give us understanding, as we cannot understand this apart from you, apart from the Spirit of God guiding our thoughts. Father, let our hearts uh, be, be open, our minds be open uh, to receive your word, to desire it, to be nourished by it by the Spirit of God. Father, we love you. We praise you for all things in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so as we are working our way through this, keep in mind that the Apostle Paul, yes, he is rebuking his countrymen. He is saying some very extraordinary things, especially as you get towards the end of this particular chapter. But he does so out of a great affection for them. This isn't just somebody he's just trying to pinpoint to rebuke because of the error that they are in. He is establishing certain truths in order to lead them to Christ. You have to hear the bad news before you get the good news. And that's what the apostle is doing. As we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, some of the most difficult people to reach are those who already think that they are saved. Those who already profess Christ. If they are the ones who profess Christ and they are the ones who, who boast in the fact that they prayed a prayer a long time ago and this prayer was all that they needed to do because somebody told them as they came down to the altar, which we don't ever have an altar, I don't even know what that is, but... They come down and they pray a prayer, and then they are told, Now don't ever doubt your salvation. I was your witness. You came and prayed this prayer. That prayer means nothing if it's not given in faith. Nothing. And so when you begin to then talk to those people and you say, You cannot rely simply because you prayed a prayer at one point in your life, those are some of the most difficult ones to have them to understand their state before a holy God. It is genuine saving faith which brings us into favor with God. That saving faith is what is granted to us, not anything that is conjured up in us. And so this is brought about by the Spirit of God, not by the will of man. And so the apostle is, is speaking to a people who have identified themselves as God's covenant people for hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years. God had established his covenant with the people of Israel, with Moses, close to 1,500 years, between 14 and 1,500 years before 
Christ comes on the scene, and for all that time they have been identified as God's covenant people, and they have been given the law, they were given the covenants, they were given the outward sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. And they prided themselves on this. A number of times you see, especially in the Old Testament, that you have the people of Israel who are so focused on, on the objects of their worship that they missed the entire, the entire point of what those objects were to lead them to do, which was to praise and honor God. For instance, as you read in 1 Samuel that the Israelites are going to go to war with the Philistines, they had disobeyed the Lord, and the prophet says to them, Don't go, he's not with you. So what do they do? They take the Ark of the Covenant with them. Surely because we have the Ark of the Covenant, we are good. And what was their hope in? This object. Then, of course, they are defeated and the ark is taken by the Philistines. There are a number of times that you see in the Old Testament that they place their faith in other things besides the Lord. And they are in a very similar situation even now, though they, they're not relying necessarily upon the ark of the covenant this time. They're relying on their knowledge of the, of the law. We have the law and they are elevating themselves above others because of it. And so Paul is going to then demolish uh, that foundation, that foundation of assurance that they have. Now he begins here in verse 17, he's talking about the advantages that they do have. And these things are good that he mentions here in verses 17 and following. These are things that they were called to do. These were privileges that they had. He says, but if you bear the name Jew and, and rely upon the law... And boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. These are advantages that they had. These spiritual advantages that they had of relying on the law, boasting in God, knowing his will, approving the things that are essential. These things were indeed given by God to them. Jeremiah, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 9, speaking of boasting, our boasting can be good if properly done. In Jeremiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 23, God's word says, Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not a mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. It's good to boast. You're boasting in God? Well, that's good. You know his will? That's good. You know the things that he approves of? That's good. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39 and 40, it says, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below, there is no other Savior. Or excuse me, there is no other. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I am giving you today, that it may go well with you and your children after you, and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God has given you for all time. The Lord had given them his, his law, the knowledge of who he was. They had that understanding that he is the Lord and there is no other. That was specifically revealed to them, not given to the pagan nations they had an intimate knowledge of God, and they had an intimate knowledge of his word. In Psalm 103, 
Verse 7. The scripture says, He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the sons of Israel. So the spiritual advantages that Paul is recounting in, in Romans 2 here, these are good. He's not rebuking them for these things. These things are good. You rely on the law because that's what's going to go well with you when you enter into the land. Your obedience is going to bring the blessings of God. You boast in God. That's good. Boast that you know him. Don't boast in the wise man. Don't boast in the mighty man. Boast that you know God. And this is a gift from God. God has made known to you his ways. Through his word, you know his will. You, you're able to approve the things that are essential, the things that are essential for salvation, that are essential for worship, that he gave in the Old Testament. All of these things are good. And as a result of that knowledge, then you have Paul that is uh, teaching the role that Israel had in light of this knowledge and of knowing God's word. When he says that they are a guide to the blind, they consider themselves to be a guide to the blind, light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, Israel was the vehicle through which God was going to bless the nations. They were to be the witnesses to the nations. They were his holy nation. They were the royal priesthood. They were to make known his ways. God would bring the Messiah through them, and the nations would be blessed. The, the very law that they were given was a testimony to the surrounding nations as well. And back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 6 to 8, Excuse me, verse, beginning of verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land which you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all of these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? The knowledge that they had, the law that was given, was a witness to the nations, the surrounding nations. What laws are as righteous as these? What God is so near that they call upon him? And he is there. So because of the knowledge that they were given, they were to be a light to the surrounding nations to teach them of the true God, the one and only God. They were to take God's word and they were to use it in order to correct others, to correct others in the sense of living righteously before God, which is no different than what we're doing today. We hold each other accountable to do those things that are good and righteous in the sight of God as believers, as beloved children to be imitators of God. And so we use God's word. We have the standard in front of us of how we ought to live, and we promote that in each other. We help to cultivate that in each other. So the scenario is the same. That's what Israel was to do when it came to the surrounding nations. At this particular time, as you also see within the Gospels, the Israelites had prided themselves on being God's people. The nations are going to receive the judgment of God. They are not because they have the law. They caused pride. They did not uh, produce in them the humility uh, that was intended. Because with the knowledge of God, 
there's a greater understanding of his majesty and of his holiness. And what does that do then? As we come to understand God more and more, it produces in us humility because we recognize that we are not holy, that we are not righteous, and we can't be. And so that brings us low by elevating him because we see him in all his regal majesty sitting on his cosmic throne. And yet he has called us to be his own people in spite of us, in spite of all of our failures, in spite of all of our sins. Christ has died that we may come into his presence, be received by him. And so with the knowledge of God, there comes a greater understanding of who he is and who we are. A greater understanding of our state before him. Uh, before our conversion and of our state before him after our conversion. And it's all because of him. The knowledge that we have of God is never to cause us to be prideful. It is never, it is never meant to, to cause in us to, to, be able to, to want to lord over people and to pride ourselves that I know something that you don't. That is never... What, what is supposed to occur within the life of a believer? The, the believer is to say, because of what we are privileged to know about God, let me tell you about him. Let me tell you how you can avoid the wrath of God by placing your faith in Christ. That is what that is to cause. The more knowledge you have, the more that you're able to teach, the more you're able to give the knowledge of God to others. But what does knowledge do? Knowledge puffs up often. And we think to ourselves, Everyone else, everyone else is beneath me because I know things that they don't. And you've met people like that. I know you have. I've met people like that. They pride themselves on, on their study and on all their theology. Everything that they know, they know the, the big $5 words of infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism and soteriology and on and on and on you go using the, the $5 words and it's like, that means nothing if you're not applying it and you're not expounding what it is and how it is that people can know God to a greater extent because of it. It means nothing. There was one guy that I was in seminary with who is, who is a good example. It never fails. If I'm on social media and I happen to make a quote by Dr. Lawson, for example, this man, who apparently forgets that I was in class with him, will then comment on it and say, having studied at the Master Seminary and graduating from the Doctor of Ministry program, having sat under the teaching of Dr. Lawson, I can say that this is what he actually meant by that. And, and so you have this long thing that has to be established before he's either going to concur with what you said or he's going to say something different. Uh, there was one thing that I had uh, posted on there that was, that was funny because uh, Dr. Lawson had said, if you ever have to preach a topical sermon, do it one time, then go repent. And it was funny. And so I put a little smiley face, and he's like, uh, I can tell you that he said that in jest. I said, I know, hence the smiley face. But you have people like that that want to pat their chest because of who they studied under or where they studied at. And the blessing of being able to know is that you teach others. Everybody's being brought along together. And that's where Israel had failed and forgotten their purpose. 
and just as we do as well at times. These are good things that they were to receive, but they ended up being the means by which they would uh, build their assurance upon. Because we have this, uh, we are assured of salvation because God has given us knowledge of who he is. But here's what the apostle then says. These are good things. These are advantages that you have, but you don't practice what you preach. He says, you therefore who teach another... Do you not teach yourself? What is he saying? He's saying as you are teaching others of what is to be approved by God, or you're teaching them about God, these things are good, these things are not, this is God's law. Are you not at the same time teaching others? Are you not teaching yourself? Are you not saying to yourself, I need to examine myself in light of these truths as well to see if my life is is lining up too. But no, what is happening is I have this knowledge God gives me a pass because I am teaching others about this sort of thing, and so I don't really have to look at myself, but I need to make sure that they are doing what this says. You know what that's called? It's called hypocrisy. You who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Are you not practicing what you're preaching? Knowledge does nothing if it's not applied, and it begins first with the one who is teaching. If you are able to teach or you're able to learn new things and you want to share that with others, you need to apply what you're learning in order order that others can not only hear what you're saying, but they can see it in your life, the genuineness of what you're saying. It's easy to point out a number of things, but if you're going to try to be an influence for others, they need to see the genuineness of that in you. Your genuine love for God, your genuine love for his word. And so for this particular individual that Paul is speaking to, perhaps a hypothetical person, because he is anticipating some pushback from his Jewish audience, you're not practicing what you preach. You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, as we talked about before, even with Paul's indictment of the Gentiles in in chapter 1, verses 18 to the end of the chapter, and then he says in chapter 2, you're doing the same thing, speaking to the Jewish audience. They may not have been doing exactly what the Gentiles were doing because they were all caught up in idolatry, but they were still sinning in the same manner. And so the apostle is bringing out here, you're teaching people that they shouldn't steal, but you do it. You're teaching people that they shouldn't commit adultery, but you're doing it. Now, there may not be taking physical things, but as one theologian points out, he says about stealing that, uh, for instance, he gives a few scenarios here that laziness, laziness robs employers or carelessness in your job robs employers, or being wasteful at your job, robs the employers, bad stewardship, refusing to pay loans, greed in itself, greed and envy, bring about uh, those sort of things of stealing in the various ways here. Do you commit these things? 
about adultery. It may not be physical. Perhaps this individual that Paul is referring to may not have physically committed adultery. But we recognize from what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, to lust after another is to commit adultery in your heart. And so you're guilty. You're guilty of stealing. You're guilty of adultery. And he says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What is he referring to there? And there's a wide variety of opinions on this, but likely what he is referring to is is the number of pagan temples that were throughout the land of of the pagan temples being torn down and then profiting from taking the idols out of the temple, perhaps melting down the, the precious metals and then selling whatever. So they're profiting, even though they abhor idols, they're still profiting from those idols and being able to take it, melt it down, and resell it. You profit from this, and yet you tell others that they shouldn't be committing idolatry. So he's, he's establishing to his Jewish audience, you're guilty. You yourselves are guilty. You can't pride yourself simply because you know the law. You're guilty of the law. God is not pleased simply because we know something. God is not pleased simply because we might be guiding others into what is right if we ourselves are not doing it too. And again, that is hypocrisy. One writer says the entirety of chapter 2, verses 12 to 23 is, Whereas the Gentiles cannot be excused because they didn't know the law, the Jews will not be excused because they knew the law well. The question for both is, do you heed what you know? And that's what the apostle is getting at. You pride yourself on what you know, but are you doing? Are you doing these things? There's no merit in just having the knowledge alone. There's no eternal benefit. They're breaking the law. And in doing so, they bring dishonor to the name of God. He quotes from Isaiah 52 here. In verse 24, he says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, in Isaiah 52, you have the Israelites who are going to go into judgment because they were breaking the law of God. And the testimony then that they are giving to the surrounding nations is they really don't believe in Yahweh. They're really not adhering to what Yahweh said. And so the name of God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them, because of their disobedience and disregarding the Lord. And that's where Paul is saying to them, even now, you're blaspheming the name of God among the Gentiles because you're not doing what you're telling others to do. You don't really believe it. You're not really calling people to serve God faithfully because you're not doing it. We can bring dishonor to God in the same way. If we only tell people what they should be doing and they don't see the genuineness of our faith in us, we're accomplishing nothing. This is where, um, when I grew up, there was a saying in the household that I grew up in, not with my mom, but with my dad. Do as I say, not as I do. You heard that, right? What is it that we're teaching our children when we say, do as I say, not as I do? We're teaching our children to be hypocrites. Don't look at me, just do what I say. 
Don't look at me as your example. Just do what I say. What does that do to the child? I'm, I'm looking at the parent going, well, you're doing it, so what's the problem? And that's what they are doing. That's what we do as well, not just to our children, but to others. One theologian, he says this, all Christians, but especially pastors and other leaders, have the ability to bring honor or shame to God's name. When our light shines, the Father is glorified. When our practices contradict what we preach, we invite observers to dishonor God. Everyone falters. Everyone is inconsistent, but blatant, continual sin provokes the charge of hypocrisy. When a preacher calls for sacrifice but owns a mansion or two, when he calls for kindness but shouts and curses, he damages the cause of Christ. Such hypocrisy leads one to curse God and another to abandon the church. Both conclude that Christian doctrine is empty rhetoric. And that's not only true for pastors, leaders, but it's true for all who call themselves Christians. You practice what you preach. Because in doing so, you're showing the genuineness of your faith. And when you don't do that and you care nothing for that, then you have to go back and, and analyze yourself to say, well, I have no desires for the things of God. I have no desire to try to please him with my life. Surely the knowledge that I have of him is good enough. Then you really need to go back and say, am I really converted? I was talking to one young man earlier this week. He and I were riding in the truck together, and we got to talking about the Christian faith. There's a certain kind of substance that he struggles with, and then sometimes he, he just thinks it's okay. He calls himself a believer, professes to know Christ because he prayed a prayer, and yet he cares nothing to walk in obedience to the Lord. Nothing. He thinks that just because he's doing these particular things and he asks the Lord to forgive him, then he goes and does it again, that everything's still okay. It's like that's accomplishing nothing because you're asking the Lord to forgive you something you know you're going to go back and do. And you have no remorse for it. So there are people like that who, who, who are so confident because of praying a prayer. That prayer, again, saves no one. What is it that's required? It's not, Lord, come into my life. Lord, come into my heart. Pray this prayer after me, etc., etc. What does it take to be a believer? Believe. Saving faith is defined as having an understanding of the gospel, agreeing that it's true, and then trusting in those truths for your salvation, for your hope. It's basically saying, I agree that Jesus did these things. I agree that he died on the cross for sins, I agree that all that's true, that he rose again from the dead. And then the third aspect of trusting, it's like this. I believe that those things are for me. That's saving faith. And what does that produce in us? That produces a genuineness of wanting to please God with our life. Knowledge is, is a false assurance, if that's what we're relying on. And not only that, but outward rituals. Certain rites that were performed even by the people of God. 
Specifically, he addresses here circumcision. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, what is he meaning by all this? When God entered into covenant with the people of Israel, with Abraham, with the people of Israel, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. And there are a variety of opinions as to why that was. It distinguished them from the surrounding nations. Because the promise was given to Abraham, in you, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so the covenant sign was given, perhaps in reference to that. But nonetheless, because they had the covenant sign, that became their source of assurance. God has given us this. And so surely we are his covenant people and we are, we are, we, we have our salvation because we have the covenant sign. And the apostle says, you may have the outward covenant sign. But if inwardly, if your heart is not circumcised by the spirit of God, then the outward right, the outward expression is nothing. Now this is something extraordinary here because the Jews again prided themselves on the covenant sign. I mean, even in the New Testament passages uh, or letters of Paul, what does he call them? He calls them the circumcision to identify the Jews because it was such a big deal. You know, when you go back and you read some of the apocryphal books, which are not inspired, but you go back and read like First Maccabees, for example, which gives a good historical understanding of what happened during the intertestament time. You go to First Maccabees chapter 1 and you're reading of, of Antiochus IV, who was the Seleucid king, who was trying to spread the Greek culture uh, throughout his particular empire and the Jews specifically. He outlawed circumcision. And parents were willing to die in order that their son would be circumcised. And so because of all of that in the Maccabean revolt, it became an expression of loyalty to God. To be circumcised, it was an expression of being loyal to God, a sign of your loyalty. And, it, and so the rite itself became the essence of the covenant rather than the sign of the covenant. And so they missed, they missed the point of the entire rite of circumcision and its value. Simply being circumcised was of no benefit. And again, recognize this. This is Paul, who is a Jew, who is saying these things. It's like, how can he say this? Especially knowing how important it was to his own people. Because Paul really, as he is rebuking this perhaps hypothetical Jew, uh, perhaps he is even speaking to his, his former self. In Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 1, God's word says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. 
So Paul knows exactly the mindset of his audience because that was him. He knows the, the emphasis that's put on circumcision because he put the emphasis on circumcision, on the covenant sign. But here's what he says. Even if you have the outward sign of circumcision and you're breaking the law of God, this is of no value. You're dishonoring God. But then he gives another hypothetical. If you have the uncircumcised man, meaning a Gentile, who keeps the law, though he's not circumcised, he doesn't have the covenant sign, is not his uncircumcision going to be counted as circumcision? Meaning that even though he's uncircumcised, will he not be counted as the covenant people of God? Because he obeyed? And he goes so far as to even say this. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. There were a number of places in the Old Testament that God would call to the people. Circumcise your heart. Cut the flesh from your heart is the idea. But then he also promises that the days are coming in which he's going to circumcise their hearts. You know, when you have the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, when he makes a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, he's going to put his law in their heart. When you look at Ezekiel 36, here's what he says. Verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So the new birth, which is symbolized in circumcision, the circumcision of the heart, is what the Spirit of God does in the individual. The one who keeps the law, though he is an uncircumcised Gentile, the one who is desiring to do the things of the law, is counted as the covenant people of God on the basis of his faith in Christ. Now, Paul isn't talking about replacement theology. He's not saying... Uh, he's, he shouldn't be accused of uh, replacing you know, Israel uh, with the church and all of this. But here's something to think about as well. Replacement theology is really, when it comes to the scriptures and the, and the, the teaching of scripture, that, it, that is a false uh, accusation. Here. And you're reading it for yourself. Here, say, here the Apostle Paul says he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And then he says in Galatians chapter 3, beginning of verse 6, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. 
then he says later on in chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 19, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if the law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be based on the law. And so he's speaking of the same things here. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. That it was, that's what it was intended to do for the Jews themselves so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Then he says of the church in chapter 6 of Galatians, he calls them the Israel of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Now listen to these words. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. That is the citizenship of Israel. That's what the word means. You were excluded from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one man, new man, and thus establishing peace, peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. So when you're taking all of these passages of scripture and you're looking at the church, the church has not replaced Israel because the church, the church is not just a Gentile entity is what people think. You have this idea that you have the church and then you have Israel over there. He puts up with the church, but he really loves those people over there. And what is it that the, the scriptures say? When the new covenant is even announced in Jeremiah 31, I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah and the Gentiles are brought into this covenant. And so the church began with Jews. The church continues to have Jews and Gentiles alike. The church has not replaced Israel. The church is the true Israel made up of Jews and Gentiles. And all of those passages of Scripture are what is being described. You don't have two different programs. You don't have one body of Christ with two heads. You have one body, Jews and Gentiles, and everyone has the same citizenship. And that's what the scriptures present to us. You have the same rights and status as the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. Because you are now sons and daughters of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. You know, we sing of that. We sing a little children's song. 
Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord. Do we really believe that? <laughs> but that's what we sing, isn't it? It's exactly what the scriptures are teaching us. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 11, don't be prideful, don't be arrogant, because the natural branch was broken off, and you, the wild olive, was grafted in. Grafted into what? Grafted into the covenant people of God. So don't be boastful. But that's what the apostle is saying here. The ones who have faith in Christ, not just an outward covenant sign, are those who are the true circumcision, regarded as God's covenant people. They relied on circumcision. Many people today rely on baptism. They rely on their baptism. Well, I was baptized, so I must be good. And again, that was, that was the thoughts of, of the Jews when it came to circumcision. In Acts chapter 15, beginning verse 1, it says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Acts 15, 1. Verse 5 of Acts 15, but some of the sect of Pharisees who had, been, who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Nowadays, it's baptism. Unless you are baptized, you cannot be saved. What is it that's happening? You're taking the sign of the covenant. You're making it the essence of the covenant. The object of faith is Christ, not in your baptism. Baptism, interestingly, baptism and circumcision both are demonstrating the reality of the Spirit of God in the heart. It is God who circumcised your heart with the Holy Spirit of God. It's, it's the Lord who has baptized you with the Holy Spirit of God. So both covenant signs are pointing to the reality of the Spirit of God in us. But the outward covenant signs is not what we rely on. I was watching a show uh, not too long ago that uh, had, a, had a barbarian who was coming up against these, this uh, nation of, of Christians, these barbarians making war with these Christians, and they were going to have a little peace treaty. And the Christian king had requested, in order for this to be valid, we want one of your men to be baptized as a Christian. And in so doing, he was saying, be converted to a Christian. And all that was necessary was to be baptized. And that's it. Now, granted, it's a show. But it is giving uh, a, a reality that a lot of people trust in, simply because they're baptized. Covenant signs do not save you. A covenant sign is God's sign and seal that you are his on the basis of your faith in Christ. And that is, that is the reality. Your knowledge gives no assurance. Your covenant sign does not give any assurance. Simply by attending church does not give you assurance. Your knowledge of God's word, your theology. And this is where Paul is going to lead his Jewish audience to this very reality. It is Christ and Christ alone 
that is the object of your faith and your hope. You cannot trust in any of these, but you can trust in Christ, and that is what brings true salvation. Trusting in his, his life, his perfect life, fulfilling the law of God. Trusting in his death, that on the cross he endured the very righteous wrath of his Father against sin on your behalf, and then he rose again from the dead. By believing these truths, we may have eternal life. And then the expression of that, of our faith in Christ, is then delighting in the law of God and seeking to do the things that are written, that God would be pleased not to gain salvation, but because of our salvation. If you look to the law of God, which Paul says is righteous and altogether holy, as he says in Deuteronomy that we read earlier, what other nation has laws as righteous as these? When we look to the law of God, we see the things that are good and pleasing in the sight of God. And we do these things to demonstrate our love and devotion to him. Thank you for saving me. How can I live my life? Let me carry out the things that you have written here that I may show you my appreciation and my love. And that's where Paul is moving his audience to. It's not just the keeping of the law. It's not just knowing, having the knowledge of the law. It's first and foremost by faith in Christ, which is brought about only by the Spirit of God. And that's where he ends in verse 29. The circumcision of the heart is only brought about by the Spirit of God. None can be saved apart from the Spirit of God doing the work. So, even though he's talking to the Old Covenant people, that is grounded in, in the Old Testament as well. These things are so true of us today. Don't let knowledge puff you up to think that, that you, you have more status because of what you know. And don't let that be your assurance. Don't lord over other people and think to yourself of how much better you are because you know something they don't. Don't be the one who is the hypocrite who won't look at their own life but loves to point out everyone else's life. That's not, that's not what Christianity was ever supposed to be, but that's what you find. Let the word of God richly dwell in you, penetrating into your very heart to humble you before God. And that you're seeking God all the more and that you're delighting in the word of God and you're delighting in leading others to, bring, to, to come along with you on your Christian walk having Christ as the source of your hope. Christ is the object of faith. Again, he's the object of faith. Not baptism, not obedience, not submission. These things are part of the new life that is in Christ that the Spirit brings about in us. The object of faith is Christ alone. Let us remember that delight and what God has done for us in him and then live our lives in light of that we'll stop there and we will pick it back up next lord's day if you would please stand as we pray together heavenly father thank you once again for this portion of your word and thank you father that uh, your word uh, leaves us father having no other assurance but christ we cannot depend on anything else we can't depend on our family status or attending church, growing up in church, a prayer that we prayed before. Our hope and our assurance is in Christ and all that he did. Father, thank you uh, for this, this portion of your word, and I pray that, that the Spirit of God would adhere to our hearts and, 
bring about whatever it is that you desire in us, uh, that we would walk before you in a manner pleasing to you. Father, uh, we pray for each person here, and if there's one that uh, does not truly know you, uh, we pray, Father, that you would open their eyes, give them a new heart to call upon Christ with true, genuine faith. Father, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said.